It's Mark chapter 1. We're going to read the first 13 verses together. The beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And so John came, baptizing in the desert region and preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the river Jordan. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me will come one more powerful than I, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. As Jesus was coming out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. At once, the Spirit sent him out into the desert. And he was in the desert for 40 days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and angels attended him. A few familiar songs, Bible verses, the wreath. There's going to be lots of announcements later on about special services. Well, maybe after giving off for several weeks about the ads and the music in shops since early November, we can finally get a little bit excited now. It's okay now. We're going to break off for a while from our series on recommissioned and start a new one on Mark's gospel that will run through into the new year. We're going to call it King's Cross. So it's perhaps appropriate that we start the Advent season by looking at the start of that gospel. To a time when the people were still waiting for that first arrival, but we're not going to look at either of the familiar birth stories that we get in Matthew and in Luke. Instead, we're going to do what Mark does and jump straight into the time when Jesus first arrived on the scene publicly and began his public ministry. There's no nonsense. Mark just says it as it is. We even see it in the title of his book. It's the start of something special, the good news. And it's actually not the gospel of Mark. It's the gospel of Jesus the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God. Just a simple statement right at the start so we know where we stand. Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah, God's expected king, and he's the one who appears as God's son, a phrase that Mark will go on to explain later in the gospel. So he's essentially writing a biography of Jesus for beginners, focusing on the identity, the mission, the call of Jesus on our lives. 
That's Mark in a nutshell. And this first Sunday in Advent has traditionally been the start of the church year. There's a calendar year, there's the school year, there's the tax year. Well, today begins what traditionally has been the start of the church year, a time to focus on beginnings. And there's something here for any of us who may be at the place in our lives where we're ready to get started with Jesus, seriously. There's also plenty for all of us, no matter how long we've been on the journey, as we get back to some important first principles of what it means to follow this Jesus. First 13 verses are essentially an introduction to the whole gospel. It features three episodes, all of which take place out of the public eye, away from where we would expect a coming king to announce himself away from the city, far away in the desert. Begins like any good concert begins with the support act, or like any good movie with the trailers that they show for months beforehand. In this case, the support act is John the Baptist and his ministry. And then we have the endorsement of who Jesus is at his baptism, and then we have the first opposition in form of his temptation. So I have three things, and I'm sorry my visuals aren't working this morning. There was a, a formatting problem. But just remember the three things that I want to share with you from this passage. First of all, I call it preparing the space, listening to the voice, and fighting the beasts. Preparing the space, listening to the voice, and fighting the beasts. It's appropriate at Advent that we look at a passage that deals with expectation. As I said, Mark just jumped straight in to Jesus' ministry. But this ministry didn't come out of nowhere. It had a context. And Mark takes two key verses from the Old Testament prophets, Malachi and Isaiah, right at the beginning, verses 2 and 3, and he applies them to who was actually the last Old Testament prophet. The last Old Testament prophet, strictly speaking, wasn't Malachi. It was John the Baptist, the strange character who lived like a prophet, dressed like a prophet, ate like a prophet, and spoke like a prophet. The people would have had no doubt of what sort of ministry John had. He might as well have had a sticker on his forehead saying, Elijah. And Mark draws attention to this because the first verse, verse 2, is a quote from Malachi chapter 3 about the one going ahead. And Malachi is also, if you just flick back two books, I think it's about page 962 in your Bibles, just flick back two books, Mark, back through Matthew, to Malachi, see the connection between the Old and the New Testament stories here. And at the end of Malachi's prophecy, the very final paragraph speaks about how another Elijah is going to come to prepare the way for the Lord. And as Colin was saying, a 400-year wait, John now fulfills that prophecy. And John's message was all about what was about to happen. It wasn't about himself. It was about the next act of the play, the one who was about to appear. And John played his part primarily, hence his nickname, uh, by offering baptism. 
And baptism did exist within the Jewish tradition among, and also among certain sects of Judaism. It existed for, certain, for various purposes. It was usually tied in with ritual purification, or it was tied in with the initiation of Gentile converts into Judaism. And Mark says that specifically in this case, John's baptism <coughs> was about repentance and the forgiveness of sins. It was a way of preparing people's hearts and minds. It was a way of their saying, I want to be ready for whatever God is doing. I want to identify with him and his purposes and his kingdom. That is essentially what those who were coming to be baptized would have been saying. Now, of course, they had no idea. In fact, we know from another incident later in the Gospels that John himself had no idea at this stage what God's kingdom would entail or what it would look like or what the implications would be for him or for the people he was baptizing. It was just an open-ended whatever. I'm here. I'm in. I want to be part of this. John oversaw the first stage. He got an audience. He found people who might be ready to hear the radical message which Jesus was about to proclaim. People who were preparing the space for Jesus to come. <clears throat> and so they came to be baptized, to prepare that space in their lives. There's a phrase that the Christian church has used over the years for this very first initial stage of preparation— it's the phrase, conviction of sin. The realization that we have fallen short, that we need a rescuer. It's a vital stage if we're coming to Jesus. And yet culturally for us today, it is a radical message. I think one of the biggest barriers for 21st century Western men and women, and I certainly see it among students, one of the biggest barriers to get over before we're ready to hear the good news of Jesus is the barrier of recognizing that we actually have a need, that we have sin, that we need to repent. We live in a culture that tells us from our earliest days, through education, media, peer dynamics, whatever, that we're okay. Be yourself. We don't need to change. We live in a culture that says it's offensive to call anybody a sinner. A culture that will try to back Christians into a corner, even by the way it frames the questions that it asks us. Do you believe this is a sin? Do you believe that doing that is a sin? The presupposition is that if you say yes, you're being judgmental and hypocritical. And the answer, of course, is to find out, first of all, what the person thinks a sin actually is because many people have never thought of how to answer that question. They've never thought about whether they believe in it at all, and they've never thought about how they come to the decision of where and why they draw the line at certain places. If you read the conversion stories of any person, contemporary or historical, you'll always find that it came after a period of conviction, maybe only a short period of of minutes as a preacher spoke, and they suddenly realized I'm in trouble. If I want to be forgiven, I'm going to need some help. Or sometimes it was months or years seeking, searching, exploring, 
other avenues without success, trying to find peace and freedom from this growing awareness of sin and their own brokenness. Conviction. With no conviction of sin, this is not a culture that is naturally predisposed to hearing the message of Jesus. Because what John is doing is introducing some of the key aspects of the teaching of Jesus himself. Jesus would preach repentance. And he also introduces the fact in verse 7 that who Jesus was and what Jesus would be coming to do would in every way be superior and greater than anything they had seen before. John didn't do good PR. His message was politically incorrect, and he was totally against self-promotion. I'm not worthy to tie this guy's shoelaces, as we would say. And then he says, if you thought water baptism was a special experience, wait till you see what he has in store. Baptism in the Holy Spirit. Now again, they probably would have had no idea what that was about, but they would know enough to be pretty impressed and awestruck. Really? Could we in some way be anointed by the Spirit of God himself? And so John prepares the way. Verse 3, he makes the paths straight. He's like a construction worker on a country road that's turning it into a dual carriageway, getting rid of the chicanes, making it easy to get straight from A to B. No nonsense. That's what John's ministry was about. Now, are we ready for the message? Clearing, preparing the space. And then listening to the voice. Having established that John's baptism was for forgiveness of sins, we go from a strange character, John, to a strange event, as Jesus himself appears. And his first appearance again is not what we would expect a, a rising political leader to do. He's not a prince on horseback. He's not a popular revolutionary handing out his manifesto. But just one of the crowd coming to be baptized like the rest of them. Now, we only have a problem with this because we know how the story develops, many of us. And as you look through the New Testament, we know that Jesus was sinless. So how could he need baptism if there was nothing to forgive? But watching the story for the first time, Jesus simply enters the story as one of the crowd, comes like many others had done before to be baptized. I don't know, maybe lining up with them, taking his place in the queue. But this time it turns out to be different. As Jesus emerges from his baptism, two things occur. A voice is heard from heaven and the form of a dove seems to land on him. And the voice says, this is my son. I am pleased with him. This might seem a strange illustration, but bear with me. You know sometimes in one of those car parks where you get the first 30 minutes or first hour or if it's Belfast City Airport, first 10 minutes free and then you go and validate your ticket on the way out. And if you've gone over the time, 
you have to pay the debt, whether it's £1 or £2 or if it's Belfast City Airport, £6.50. But if you're within the limit, the machine just says, paid. No need for any debt to be cancelled. Well, here, it's as if at these baptisms, sinner after sinner has been baptized and God accepts that and forgives, pays the debt, until Jesus comes and it's a case of nothing to see here, nothing to forgive. And so uniquely, God speaks from heaven and acknowledges that this is different. Acknowledging who Jesus is, with everybody else, there was something to forgive, but here he says, I'm pleased because this is none other than my own son. And then there's the dove. There are fascinating connections throughout this chapter with the Old Testament history that John's disciples would have known very well. We see it in each section of the passage. In the first section that we've looked at, we see the connection with Elijah in the ministry of John, they would have recognized this as this guy's a new Elijah. And the quote from Malachi. And there's another connection we'll see in the third story in a minute. But here, those watching this extraordinary episode as Jesus emerged from the water of the Jordan would have been aware of another time a dove appeared over the waters. As Noah and his family were saved through the water, something that actually Peter in his letter uh, likens to baptism. As the flood waters recede, you remember Noah sent out a couple of birds. Sent out first a raven that flew around and around and didn't come back. And then he sent out a dove that came back again and again until there were trees visible again for it to land on. What was the difference between the raven and the dove? The raven was an unclean bird. It was quite happy to feed off the dead corpses, human and animal, that would have been floating around. It could survive that way. But the dove was regarded as a clean animal and would not land on anything unclean. The dove would not land on anything unclean. So what was going on? Well, at one level, we see in the baptism the humility that was to characterize Jesus' ministry throughout the following years as he identified with us, as he walked where we would walk, as he would walk with those people even through the waters of baptism even though he didn't need to. To quote Matthew's version of this story, that he would fulfill all righteousness that he would leave no stone unturned as he demonstrated the type of king, the type of Messiah he was going to be. But more significantly, much more significantly, I believe, was an opportunity in this baptism for Jesus to be acknowledged by no less than God himself in terms of his true identity. John had already authenticated him in his preaching. And now this is backed up by the Father authenticating him through the voice and the Spirit authenticating his sinlessness in the form of the dove alighting on him. And then in the third section, we see Jesus' identity 
being authenticated by another source altogether. I call this fighting the beasts. As if the humility of his baptism wasn't a good enough example, the next thing Jesus does before his ministry begins is to disappear altogether into the wilderness for 40 days. And here his identity is acknowledged by the supernatural powers, good and bad, the powers of darkness and light, Satan on the one hand and the heavenly angels on the other. Now, you probably know the temptation story is told in much greater detail by Matthew and Luke. We get the content of the temptations. We get the words of Jesus in response. Here it is told very, very simply, and what it focuses on may surprise us. If we just read Matthew and Luke, we, we might mistakenly think that Jesus was only tempted three times. I think Mark brings out here what is actually implicit in the other Gospels, and that is namely that Jesus was constantly tested in different ways throughout the whole 40 days, repeatedly in the ways described by Matthew and Luke, in the variation of those core temptations to abuse his power, to serve his own interests, to win his people over by a means other than God's chosen way of humility. God's chosen way of sacrifice, God's chosen way of the cross. And so we go here from a strange character, John, through a strange event, the baptism, to some strange companions. Mark says, fascinatingly, that he was with the wild animals, and the angels ministered to him. As modern city dwellers used to watching the occasional David Attenborough film on TV, or maybe if we've been privileged a holiday where we can go to an open zoo or on a safari, we can have a romanticized view of wild animals. But the wilderness was a dangerous place. And having been reminded of Elijah and then Noah, we now turn to Daniel the most famous example of somebody spending a prolonged period of time with wild animals and only being spared because God closed their mouths. So here was Jesus, wandering among the wild beasts, and they did not harm him. The physical danger from the wild animals and that vulnerable exposure that Jesus would have felt out in the wilderness at night alone would have been a fitting metaphor for the spiritual exposure he would have felt in the face of the temptations of Satan. Think about it. An insatiable, snarling beast is not a bad metaphor for some of the temptations we face constantly in our lives too. Was one of them going to destroy him? Well, as he resisted the temptations, we see that neither the testing of Satan nor the roaring of the wild beasts could harm him. We've got a fleeting foresight here into the defeat of the evil supernatural powers as we see the messengers of God, the angels, acknowledging who he is by ministering to him and sustaining him. How did they do that? What's going on? 
Well, you remember one of the temptations was summarized as by the temptation to turn stones into bread. We know from the other gospel that Jesus had been fasting, that he was hungry, of course. But maybe the fact that he was being supernaturally sustained somehow by the angels enabled him to resist. In John's gospel, Jesus says to his disciples, I have a food that you know nothing about. In his communion with his Father in the wilderness, as he prepared for the difficult years ahead of him, and all the temptations he was going to have to resist throughout that period, he was being nourished somehow supernaturally. Another temptation, you remember, was to throw himself down off the temple and summon the angels to catch him so that everybody would flock to see this great publicity stunt. But why? Why would he need to summon the angels when the angels were already there, ministering to him in the desert? That's what he knew. Now, Satan tried to tempt him. Satan was in the dark about the disadvantages he faced. Satan was unaware of the deep spiritual resources at Jesus' disposal. Jesus did have the host of heaven at his command. He was simply choosing the road of self-denial and humility, the different path. Jesus the Messiah, Son of God, promised by the prophets, prepared for by John, acknowledged by God himself, and before whom the forces of the natural world, the wild beasts, and the supernatural world, the devil and his demons, before whom all of, they were, all of them were powerless. That's how Mark begins his biography. Out in the desert, Jesus' identity, acknowledged by the human, the divine, and the demonic. Boom, boom, boom. Let's get down to business. How should we apply this? Well, I could take the Advent context and say, this Christmas, why don't we prepare to make space for Jesus? Amid all the clutter and commercialism of Christmas, let's prepare space in our hearts and in our homes for him. I could encourage us to listen for the voice of Jesus above the cacophony of noise and bustle and bad Christmas songs. I could encourage us to fight the beasts of greed and ingratitude and self-indulgence and short tempers that get even shorter at this time of year. And all of that might be very good advice, by all means. But I don't think that was Mark's point. He didn't write his gospel to tell us to try harder and do better and have a more harmonious Christmas. In fact, if anything, he showed the limitations of that approach. He illustrated the limitations of John's baptism. People who genuinely, sincerely wanted to do better, wanted freedom from their sins, who came to be baptized. But what hope did they have unless someone greater and better came along? Which, of course, is exactly what John was preaching. There's someone greater coming who will baptize you in the Holy Spirit. You see, it is God himself who is already central to this story in each section. In John's ministry, the Father promising that the Son would come and baptize by the Spirit. 
at the baptism, the sun going down into the water and the Father speaking and the Spirit descending. In the desert, the Spirit driving the Son into a lonely place to be tempted but to resist and for the Father to send His ministering angels to sustain Him. God, God, God. And the good news, the gospel, is that He's arrived. He's come. And so, folks, we don't need to make space for Jesus this Christmas because He's already here. We don't need to strain our ears to listen for His voice because He's already spoken. We don't need to tame the beasts on our own strength because He has defeated the powers of evil already. good friend of mine has described the Christian life once as a waltz. It's composed of three steps, repent, believe, and fight. Many of us, he says, live it like a two-step. Some of us might repent, say we're sorry, then we believe that Jesus has forgiven us, it's all of grace, but we don't need to do anything ourselves. No effort is required to resist temptation, and so we carry on sinning. Repent, believe, sin, sin. Repent, believe, sin, sin. And others of us, I fear, do a different sort of two-step. We might repent, and we might say we're sorry, and then we try to fight the demons and the beasts and the sin ourselves, forgetting to believe the gospel, that it is all of Jesus' grace. We refuse to accept and to understand the gospel of grace. We try to do what Jesus would do, and we forget what Jesus has already done. And so we repent and fight and fail. Repent and fight and fail. Repent and fight and fail. But it's a waltz. It's what we see in this passage. Repent, says John. Believe the voice from heaven. And then fight in the strength of the only one who has fought and won for us. You see, folks, preparing the space is not about sorting our lives out first, clearing away the rubbish, so that maybe Jesus might want to come and visit us. It's, been a, it's about being convicted of our need and preparing the space in our hearts for Him to come and, if you like, do the decluttering that's necessary. It's not about us trying to be a showhouse for Jesus might be like a prospective buyer. It's about recognizing that our house is a mess and inviting in the declutterer. And she didn't pay me to say that. Do you get the difference? It's not that we try to make everything right and clean ourselves so that Jesus might be interested. It's about just telling him to come on in and sort it out. Listening for the voice it's not about trying to decode some secret message that God might be wanting to say to us. It's about tuning into the right station on the car radio to hear what has already been said. This is my son, my loved one. I'm proud of him. And fighting the beasts is not about developing more natural skills to make you a better fighter. It's about honing your spiritual dependence so that you can realize that you're free to play your part in a battle that has already been won. 
if I'd had my visuals this morning, I was going to show a photograph of someone to see if anybody knew who it was. It was someone dressed in full Formula One driver's outfit standing on the podium. It's actually a guy called Carl Power. He became quite a celebrity a couple of decades ago by managing to breach all sorts of security at major sporting events and pose as one of the participants. So I have a photograph of him at the podium at Silverstone after a Formula One race. I have a photograph of him walking out to the crease to bat for England at Lords, or on Wimbledon Centre Court and famously lining up one time with the Manchester United team before a Champions League match. Incredibly, also got into the winner's enclosure with the Grant National winner. I think maybe some money might have passed hands somewhere along the line. So all the time, there he was with the champions, a winner, but he'd done nothing to contribute to the victory. Now, it's a bad illustration because the guy was a complete imposter and charlatan. A much better illustration would be maybe my college friend, Dean. Before he came to college, he had never kicked a football, but he fancied taking it up. We had to teach him not just the offside rule, but the throw-in rule. We had to show him which direction to kick. But faithfully, he trained every week with us until we eventually reached the final of the College Cup, and Dean was on the bench. And in the final, with us three goals up and five minutes left, the coach put him on, and he got to play in the final. The game was already won, but he got to be a part of it. That's how we fight. Knowing that the result is not in danger, but we're still part of it. How do we live like this? Not because Jesus resisted for 40 days in the desert, because there were other temptations right up to the Garden of, Eden, Garden of Gethsemane. There were other temptations. No, folks, we're able to do it because there was a day when the wild beasts did have their moment and Jesus wasn't spared when he was savagely beaten and bruised and crucified. There was a day when the angels didn't come to minister to him and he was left utterly alone. And instead of a voice from heaven, the Father was silent. There was only darkness, and Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And there on the cross, as he took every sin that should have been, we should have been paying the, the, the price for, and as he took every sin that those people who had been confessing with John in the desert were being baptized to have forgiven. That was when the final victory was won. And because of that, we can waltz. We can dance. Are you ready? Are you prepared for this, Jesus? Repent knowing your sins will not be held against you. Believe, knowing that God himself extends his grace to us. And fight, knowing that the result is not in doubt. 
We have nothing to fear from the forces of hell and the angels and powers of heaven itself will come and minister to us. I pray that will be our experience this Advent and this Christmas.